Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Brian Reitzel is a musician, composer, producer, and music supervisor, best known for his contributions to several films by Sofia Coppola, including The Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, and Marie Antoinette. He's also composed scores for the 2004 football drama Friday Night Lights and the TV series Hannibal, in addition to numerous other credits. In this 2015 Red Bull Music Academy lecture, Reitzel spoke about the trials and tribulations of licensing music for film, his ongoing work scoring Hannibal, and his collaborations with artists like Air, Kevin Shields, and Aphex Twin. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please help me in welcoming uh, one of my favorite musicians on the planet right now, Brian Retzel. Thanks. Brian, you, um, I think a fun way to get started is you brought a couple of toys along with you um, with which you make music, but they're obviously pretty unexpected uh, music making toys. So I wondering if you could just begin by showcasing what those are and maybe talking a little bit about how you've used them. Um, Brian's a soundtrack composer, so I think a lot of these toys have been used in Hannibal, which is a show that you've worked on for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah these were all used in Hannibal. Um, the first one is actually a toy, uh, which I bought for my daughter. It's ages three and up. Uh, she wasn't old enough, so I borrowed it. <clears throat> uh, and it sounds like this. Quite useful. Uh, now this is, you, you won't need a microphone, yeah. this is the loudest instrument known to man. It's from the 1940s. I, I live in Los Angeles and uh, this belonged to a, a guy that did film and, and radio and when he passed away his suitcase ended up at a shop full of gear and I bought it all. Um, I, I call it a crankophone, I don't know what it's called but it's dangerous. Thanks for that. You could rob a liquor store with that, I'm sure. <clears throat> uh, now, the third thing, this is an eBay item. It's a post-war Japanese children's siren put on a bicycle. And I, uh, I love uh, Penderecki, and, and I wanted to rent some of the giant sirens, um, and they were out. I, the guy didn't have them, and I remembered I had bought this thing, and it totally did the trick. So it's difficult to play um, when it's not mounted. I'll do my best. I like the part at the end. Uh, and then the last item is a bull roar. That might be a little bit dangerous in here. Do we have enough room, do you think? Dangerous, good. 
danger is good. Okay. Work, I find when you work on scary stuff, if it's scary to make it, it, it gets itself inside the music. So I'll just be sure it's not going to fly off and impale anyone. But um, the bull roar is one of the oldest instruments on earth. They found them on every continent. Uh, this one, however, comes from Stockton, California. I got it on eBay for five bucks. It's the best sounding one I've ever heard. And it's, it is dangerous. So here we go. Come on. Doesn't always go the first time. Like all great instruments. Or the second time. Third time's a charm. It's jet lagged. Wow. <laughs> so I think, um, obviously, it's quite nice to see you doing that um, in person and kind of uh, showcasing how you might uh, put that to use would be even better. So we have a video, uh, video number one, that I'd like to watch now. And uh, it's a clip from the show that you've worked on, uh, Hannibal, over the past three years. Um, I have to say I found it very difficult to find a section of Hannibal, which I could actually show an audience. Um, it's, a, it's about Hannibal Lecter. Um, the serial killer, um, and we can talk a little bit about that afterwards, but this is, uh, I guess, safe-ish to show. Um, why don't we go ahead and roll that clip? Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, um, bum too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to Couch Wisdom. That was a clip from Hannibal. Um... Tell me how you made that. <laughs> uh, well, you notice there's no dialogue at all. It's all music, um, sound and, and music. Um, Hannibal is, I, I approach it different than anything else that I've done, which is I, I put it up. I don't read the scripts. I don't get ahead. Uh, I just want to put it on and instantly make music to it. The very first time I see it, I'm sitting at some instrument, whether it's a keyboard or the drum set or the Swarmatron. Um, What's a Swarmatron? A Swarmatron is an analog eight-voice synthesizer that is controlled with, uh, it has two ribbons. Um, it's actually, I believe, a piece of VHS tape uh, with a leather strip across it. And when you press it, it one, one of the ribbons controls the pitch and the other controls the filter. And it's called a swarmatron. It sounds like a swarm of bees. So you get these cluster tones. It's great for creating atmosphere. Um, and so I'll sit and just react to the images to get my gut feeling, but also to um, just kind of stay in inside of it and then i'll build on top of that and the you know i eventually i've spent a lot of time on something like that but i'm getting my first impression which with horror is great because it, it's being with the audience you know what i mean so you said before that 
it is quite nice because you're a couple seconds yes. behind, yeah. which is where the audience is. Exactly right. Yeah, that's that's the point is to is to react to it rather than to be on top of it. You know, my background is in playing drums and percussion, and r- the the rhythm and the feel of it is paramount to me. It's the most important thing. So. Um, as you can see, there's quite a bit of percussion in that. Um, but there's uh, Kodo. Uh, we, we made our own Kodo out of an acoustic guitar by moving the bridge into the center. Um, um, what else is in there? There's all kinds of things. There's a lot of instruments going on in, in there. If you're making that, watching it for the first time, I mean, as a viewer, you're used to Hannibal by now. I assume yeah. the entire time you're on edge. <laughs> as well, waiting yeah. for something to happen. Yeah, it's a horrible job in that respect. Uh, it, Yeah, horror, I, I don't even like horror movies. Like, I'm still scared of Jaws, you know. Um, but it's an emotional, you know, fear is an emotion. And, and you can be, I think some of the most beautiful music is the darkest music. And uh, I'm just trying to make beautiful music, so. Why do you think you're so good? at doing horror films, even though you're so... I don't know. I don't know why I get called to do horror, and and worse yet, I've done a lot of films about um, mental issues, Um, you know, schizophrenia and stuff. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's cerebral. Maybe it's because uh, I'm approaching it more in a physical sense. I like physical music. and uh, I also really like incorporating things that aren't, you know, traditional instruments because I'm obsessed with the timbre of, of, of things. And, and being a percussionist, the, the, your library of instruments is infinite. Like anything can be an instrument. I mean, we could score a movie with everything that's just in this room. We don't need anything else. You know, you really can. Um, you started uh, out in a... A band called uh, Wire Train, I believe. No, I I played in a band with a guy from Wire Train. Okay, yeah, and then you went on to Red Cross, which yes. is where people may know you from. I went back and listened to that record. It's very good, but it's very conventional. I'd say <laughs> I was in my early twenties. Yes. How do you get from you know playing traditional drumming in a rock and roll band to making something like? The stuff in Hannibal was that always there from your childhood? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've been obsessed with sound my whole life. I mean, Red Cross was not my band. I joined that band that existed, and you know, my fantasy was to be in a band and to tour and make records. And I grew up in San Francisco, and I was doing it. I was playing in this band that you mentioned with the guy, guitar player from Wire Train, um, and our our band was called Missile Harmony. Uh, Good band name. It, and we opened for the Jesus and Mary chain uh, and all these other sort of wonderful bands, the church and stuff. And, you know, I was 19. Um, but I love music, you know, so playing pop music was great. I mean, playing with Red Cross was like going to pop college. Um, I had to know every Beatles song because the singer in that band would just turn around um, and just tell us to play something. I remember playing a show with Jane's Addiction at the height of their popularity. They were huge. And just before we're going on stage, the singer says, okay, let's play I'm a Believer. It's like the 
the monkeys. Yeah, we're going to walk out in front of Jane's Addiction's crowd. I don't even know this song. And so I did it, you know, and I love those sort of challenges. I feel like I could, you know, I, I love to improvise and I love to, you know, not overthink things, you know. Um, to, I guess in a similar way with Hannibal, you have a very short amount of time to yeah. create. Um, in the same way that, you know, you were yeah. going up on stage, yeah. you get an episode and you had seven days to create 40 minutes of music, 43 minutes. Yes. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> well, the whole, the crazy thing is Hannibal, because it's a network TV show, it has commercials. Um, <laughs> so it's 43 minutes. Um, and sometimes I've done 44 minutes because of the, the back and the front or whatever, which is ridiculous, but it's sound. And once you take, you know, Hannibal is a heightened sense of reality. It's not a, it's not real. It's never meant to be real. And it's also, it's like an opera. So it's musically driven the entire time. And um, that's why we can't take it out, you know? And, and in the first season, it gradually gets, to that point. So in the first sort of 12 episodes, there's lots of pauses. There's not music all the way through. But once the guy loses his mind, which was um, scored with this, because the director said to me, he said, you know, he's like spinning out of control. I thought, oh, spinning out of control. This is going <laughs> to spin perfectly. So when we did record this, I recorded with a, I have a microphone that has four capsules in it and it records uh just perfect uh, surround and you can I set it down on the floor and then spun the thing around it so when you listen Hannibal's all done in surround it's it's what you just listened to was folded down into stereo but when you hear it in surround it's a much more immersive experience um, again just heightened reality it's not meant to be um, traditional you know music it's supposed to be inside the guy's head, who's kind of lost his marbles a bit. Um, going back to your childhood and this sound um, obsession you were talking about, can you talk about some of the first sounds in your life? <laughs> uh, the first sound I remember being obsessed with is I lived in the suburbs of, of you know, south of San Francisco, a town called Menlo Park. <laughs> And the train, our backyard bordered on a train track. And man, I love the sound of the train. Loved it. Just <laughs> the intensity. And my father also had a drag boat with a big Hemi engine in it. And the, he would start it up on the weekends. And all the kids in the neighborhood would come by. And the sound of that engine, holy. It, it's just, it's, I mean, to me, it's, it's like the Stooges. I mean, it's just intense it's so rock and roll and it's an engine you know and it doesn't have a key center but uh yeah i mean from from that you know you're talking to three four years old i was really into those things and then i also grew up with i lived on a commune for a while uh my parents split up and here i was surrounded by hell's angels um because one of the guys that lives uh, in the commune who lived in the garage, uh, he fixed motorcycles. And so Goat's Head Soup by the Rolling Stones, I mean, that record was always playing. And as a little kid, like, man, I loved 
the Rolling Stones and and just music. You know, I was I was surrounded by music. You know, my older brother played guitar and made me play drums. Um, so that's how you got to percussion. Yeah, Your older brother of, made you. Yeah, you and my uncle had a drum set which he kept at my grandmother's house in her bedroom. I, this is all crazy. And we were not allowed to go into the bedroom. It was a very large bedroom and the, the shades were always down. It was dark. Like a weird bedroom. <sighs> you know, Let's to this day, that. I don't really understand. They've both passed away. I, I can't, I'm never going to know why his drum set was in her bedroom, but we used to sneak in there and play. And I remember I couldn't reach the pedals, but um, I ended up getting the the kit. He gave it, he, my mother convinced him to let me have it uh, to borrow. And then uh, two years later, I had to give it back to him and I had like destroyed it. You know, I had taken it apart and broken the symbols. And then I had to get a job to buy symbols to give him and I no longer had any drums. So, you know, you can sort of still play if you have a, some drumsticks or some mallets, you can, you don't necessarily need a drum set. You mentioned broken symbols, and you once said that almost every night with Red Cross, you they break, break symbols. Yeah. Yeah. What are you just playing wrong or playing too hard? <laughs> what's the deal with the broken? There's no symbols? such thing as playing wrong. By the way, it's all right. Um, it was the grunge years. I mean, it was all about hitting as hard as you could. Uh, and you know, we played in front of a huge audience. You know, it was loud. It was all meant to be. And it was a show, so you know I was shirtless and being a caveman at the drums. And the good news is that though I had no money, I was endorsed by the Zildjian Cymbal Company, and still am. Thank you. Though I never, I don't like new cymbals anymore. But uh, cymbals break. Ironically, the the thicker ones are the ones that break because they don't move properly. The thinner ones uh, seem to last longer. But yeah, I mean every every night we. I'd break something. Um, I guess I asked that because I find it interesting that, you know, in terms of bands, you went from Red Cross where you're shirtless, uh, breaking cymbals, and then your most notable next band that you played with on a regular basis was Air, um, which I think the drumming style is decidedly different. You didn't see the first tour, did you? Uh Actually, yeah, well, but, you know, I'm, neither of those bands were my band. I was brought in to, Air had never played with a drummer, really. And um, I got the gig with Air because they were going to score the Virgin Suicides. I had quit Red Cross. I, I did seven years, and, and that was enough. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I started playing, just improvising, jamming with one of the guys from the band Slint, who lived in L.A., and we were just, you know, I sort of come from jazz. Being in San Francisco, I played in, in quite a bit of experimental music, and then when I joined Red Cross, uh, I started being Ringo or, you know, whatever. But then when playing with air was kind of more going back to my San Francisco days. Um, I used to incorporate things like saw blades and I had a Freon tank mounted as part of my drum kit. And, you know, this is when I was a teenager. So I was, I didn't even have a ride symbol. I was more like Bill Bruford, King Crimson, more into, you know, interesting sounds than very conventional sounds. Um, but, 
the air thing came because they were going to score this movie and 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 it was Sofia Coppola's first film and she had asked me to be the music supervisor um because I'm a total record geek. I I you know, I know way too much about stupid things about music like where it was recorded and what year it was and what microphone they used and just, you know, and she knew that about me and that movie took place in the 70s and and she needed 70s music. Uh, so I was the guy that was choosing the music. And Air were in town doing a music video that my friend Mike Mills was directing. And he said, oh, Brian, you should meet the Air guys. And so I went to this video rap party they were having at the Chateau Marmont. And they were in the, in the room discussing the Moon Safari tour, their first tour. And they had their whole band, but they didn't have a drummer. And I literally knocked on the door and Mike Mills said, oh, Brian would be perfect. And it just so happens that they had hired some of the guys from Beck's band who I also had played with. So it was a one big happy family and they hired me without ever hearing me play drums. And, um, and then I stayed with them for like seven years. What was it like going on tour with them? Because this was also their first tour. It's great. It was great. It was great. Every show was sold out. I mean, they they were really kind of, you know, the band of the moment at the time. And um, one of the things, though, I think is interesting about it is they're clearly trying to. And Nicholas Godin mentioned this when he was on the couch earlier uh, this week. Um, it's trying to figure out how to play those songs with that sort of low tempo energy and translating that to stage. Yeah. Was that difficult? Yeah. Yeah, it was difficult. I mean, they, it, they wanted me and Justin who, who was playing bass. Um, and Nicola is a fantastic bass player yet. He didn't play bass on that tour. Um, they wanted this energy to come from us. They didn't want to play it like the record. They wanted it to be, I mean, they wanted me to be Keith Moon, you know, or or Nick Mason, maybe. And uh, I was- From Pink Floyd. From Pink Floyd, yeah. Uh, and that was easy for me. So, um, well, I mean, to the Red Cross day, I could be, you know, I kept my shirt on. You kept your shirt yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I had to. Tour. In okay. fact, I insisted we all wear white. And we did. So we wore white. The idea was that each air tour was going to be a different color. So if you saw a picture, you could say, oh, it's the white tour. Oh, it's the blue tour. The... But once I left the band, they stopped doing that. We, I did white and black. And that's... Yeah, like, yeah thanks, Brian. Thanks. Sorry. <laughs> uh, tell me about Virgin Suicides, that process. Um, obviously, it was their first time making... Everybody's first time. Yeah. 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 How did you meet Sophia originally? I guess that's an interesting story as well. Uh, well. I met Sophia when I was in Red Cross. She had dated one of the guys from the band. Um, they split up very soon thereafter. Um, in fact, when I moved to Los Angeles from San Francisco, you know, I auditioned for the band and got the gig. I had nowhere to live. And I lived in her apartment. She was busy doing some publicity thing for The Godfather 3 or something. So I lived in her apartment for two weeks. I had never met her. Um, but my girlfriend and her grew up together, best friends. Uh, I'm still with her, with Stephanie. And, and so, yeah, I mean, we were just friends, you know. 
And uh, when she went to make the movie, because, you know, something happened to me when I was 12 years old. My mother worked for the United Way, um, and which is a, uh, you know, a, I don't know if you guys know what the United Way is, but it was a, a charitable organization. Yeah, exactly. Nonprofit to help families and stuff. And um, the local radio station in the town I grew up in, in Northern California was changing formats from rock and roll to talk radio. And they donated their entire vinyl library to the United Way. And so me and my stepfather and my uncle, we drove some trucks down to the radio station and picked up literally tens of thousands of records, like so many records, all in crates. And they sat, it was a Friday and there was, they were going to sit in our house for the weekend and then they were going to be taken and then sold. Um, but they ended up staying in our, our living room for weeks. And I cut school every day for probably two weeks and I played every single record and I would just put it on and listen to it. And then while it was playing, I would look and go through and I was make my selections. And I did this because my mother said I could keep 10 records uh, and I wanted to pick the best ones, you know, it's like Uriah Heep, uh, Camel, Focus, like every, every, it was like I was in college for studying music what I was supposed to be at, you know, in seventh grade or whatever. Uh, in the end, I ended up keeping a hundred records, um, but I played them all. And it was like, man, I learned a lot. Nowadays, you could do that on the internet pretty easily. But imagine, you know, a kid in the middle of nowhere in the country suddenly has like 25,000 records. It's you like know. getting the internet. Like, it, it's yeah. exactly yeah now it's no wonder you know the thing about virgin suicides is i made that did that film i didn't have a computer uh there was no internet happening uh, i did it with a turntable and a vhs player and a tiac four track reel to reel and i you know uh i kind of still work that way you know i would spend all day in a record store literally sitting on the floor looking at records, trying to make connections, like, oh, well, this person was this, and I'm really into connections. It's probably from um, cooking. I'm, uh, I studied and became a, a chef while I was trying to support myself as a musician, and for me, it all kind of relates back to cooking and, you know, ingredients and the connection of music and food is... I suppose music's quite nice because you can take out spices if you don't like them as opposed to cooking where it's a little bit yeah, more cooking difficult. you put too much you know saffron in it or whatever you can't take it out and that's that's something you learn in the restaurant business i i used to have to make a soup a different soup every every day and like music like walking like what am i gonna you know kind of look and see and it always had to be different and yeah if you put too much salt in something you you're can i cuss <laughs> you're fucked you know so or you're gonna add more cream or stock or like dilute it you know with music luckily with you know with something like hannibal i use i max out pro tools in one act right this is what 256 yeah tracks. 256 tracks and an act is sometimes seven minutes so in seven minutes i've got like 256 tracks of music that's um so 
I mean, you can't really do that in cooking. <laughs> um, why don't we take a listen to something from Virgin Suicides just to situate ourselves? Um, this is Dirty Trip. That was Dirty Trip uh, from the Virgin Suicides soundtrack. Um, listening to the album, and I asked this of Nicola, like a lot of this didn't actually make it into the movie. A lot of the stuff that made it onto the album. I think just the bass from that. Yeah, they, they, we kind of made, made it as a record. Um, again, this had a lot to do with the fact that the technology isn't, nowadays it's really easy to work with picture. I mean, you throw it in the Pro Tools, it's so easy. Back then, it was really complicated. Uh, you had to use Simpty. You had to like have a track that just had time code on it and linking and locking and delivering was just a nightmare. So we didn't even bother. We didn't even bother. I mean, when that score was done, they had bought a little, one of those combo like TV monitor that you could stick a ta videotape in. And I think the screen was about the size of your laptop and it sat next to me i sat at the drums and it sat here and if you can tell from that recording but the drums are really dead they're so dead sounding everything is muted and this was in a way to connect it to the 70s right the movie took place in 1973 and or 74 whatever we, we don't really say but also i think we we're all obsessed with serge gainsburg melody nelson and those drum sounds and stuff uh so the drums were completely, it, it, I was enclosed in blankets and there was just a little seam right here where I could see one of the guys stood here, Nicholas stood here, and then JB stood behind him. And I would play and look at the monitor and then I'd like nod at them for the different thing. I mean, it's really primitive, but we were mostly working in a way like... Um, uh, uh, Francis Lay did Billatisse or uh, it, and that movie was scored by him looking at a still from a movie and saying okay here's a picture let's make a piece of music for this picture rather than let's score like Hannibal everything is to the frame by frame whereas this was an overall sort of um, sense of, of the mood and so we made kind of made a record based on images from the film rather than scoring the picture so much. In addition to making some of that music, you also were in charge of licensing yeah. things and getting things, and you had some classic tunes from the 70s in there, but you had no experience licensing before this. No. No idea. How did you go about that? I had no idea what I was doing. No idea. I didn't know what a music supervisor was. Um, I knew that John Barry was credited for music supervision on Midnight Cowboy. It's the only time I'd ever seen that term used. Uh, but I learned what it, what it was. And, and I did, I worked with a clearance person who I still work with to this day. Because on the first film, I did send memos and faxes and, and I learned how to license music. And then after that movie, I said, I'll never do it again. There's no reason for me to do it. I should be listening to music and being the creative guy and let somebody else do the paperwork. The music supervisor is one of the cloudiest occupations on earth. Um, most music supervisors, they don't even have anything to do with music. They just do clearances. They're, you know, the director 
uh, is the guy, is the person that's probably putting it in, a la Scarsese or Wes Anderson or whoever it is. And then a music supervisor is doing the paperwork. Um, so I did it in the first movie so I could understand it. And it's really interesting. As a musician, being a guy whose music has been licensed, it's really good to understand this business and, and what a license means. And, and uh, so I learned you know, baptism by fire on that movie. Uh, but the way I approach that movie, I've approached every movie. Um, so, How know. did you get ELO to agree to a movie that had such a tiny budget? <sighs> Sorry. This is, this is a very difficult process. We didn't have any money. It was Sophia's first movie. Uh, I think it was like two and a half, three million dollar budget. Very little of that went to music. ELO had just licensed Living Thing to the movie Boogie Nights for like $100,000 or something. Jeff Lynn is, was notorious for, you know, uh, licensing has changed a lot now. It's nothing like it was back then. In fact, you could not license ACDC. It just wasn't even possible. It didn't matter how much money you had. You couldn't license ACDC. Um, a lot of bands. Um, with ELO, I mean, <laughs> what I did is I wrote a lot of letters, and I had Sophia write letters. Um, because I'm sure the Coppola name helped it, a tiny it, bit. Yeah, yeah, no, and I could tell you some stories. Uh, I mean, we li I licensed Todd Rundgren's Hello, It's Me for that movie, and um, he gave it to us. That song had never been licensed. Imagine, hello, it's me, the phone company never licensed that song. Nowadays, it's all been licensed. But back then, and this isn't that long ago. I mean, this is like, what, 98, 99? Um, and that's because Francis knew, knew Todd Rundgren and was able to get to him. But you have to be very careful because if you go to the artist and not the publishing company or the record company, then th you could getting into trouble. And I witnessed this with, um, there's one song I could not get for Virgin Suicides, which was an Elton John song, the song Tiny Dancer. And uh, Elton gave us permission, Bernie Taupin gave us permission, but the publisher, who also was my publisher when I was in Red Cross, refused. Uh, on a technicality. Uh, uh, she was, she's long fired and gone off to wherever she's gone. And then Cameron Crowe used Tiny Dancer in Almost Famous, which came out a year later or something, whatever. Uh, with ELO, it was, it was so cool because I, Jason Schwartzman, uh, Sophia's cousin, knew a guy that knew... Another guy. Another guy that played golf with Jeff Lynn or something. And so I sent... What I had to do with that movie is I had to write a lot of letters, get a lot of people interested, and then I had to show them the film. And I've never done any gratuitous music licensing in my life, and I won't do it. You'd have to kill me before I licensed one of your songs or somebody's songs and just stuck it in there to like sell something or whatever to do a favor for someone it 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 goes in because it belongs there and so i showed this i was going to screen the film and i had sent a fax to this guy that knew a guy that knew jeff lynn 
and just cross my fingers. And I had a whole bunch of people at the screening, like Carol King's people and the people that worked with Hart and Gilbert O'Sullivan and uh, the Bee Gees. Um, and they're all in the room. We're waiting. It's 2 o'clock. It's 2.15. There's no Jeff Lynn. Uh, and I said, yeah, just, just five more minutes. And, and everybody in the room is like, Brian, Jeff Lynn, he's, he's not going to come. He's, it's got this five more minutes. I went outside and I was scratching my head waiting and up walks Jeff Lynn. And I almost peed my pants because I literally learned to play drums playing to like ELO records on Tupperware as a, as a kid. And I told him that obviously. And then he came in. Everybody in the room was like, oh, Jeff. I'm pretty sure he watched the entire movie with his sunglasses on, which is cool. Uh, and then after the movie, after the movie, he was the first guy. He stood up and he walked up and I was sitting next to Sophia and he walked up and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Brian, you can have my song for 25 cents and walked out of the room. <laughs> and everybody else was like, they all had to license their music to me because Jeff... I mean, in the end, it, you know, he got his fair share, but it wasn't 25 cents. But the fact that he said that was like, wow, I was floating. Um, but I learned to be resourceful. I learned to write letters. I mean, every film that I had to do, the last film I did with Sophia, Bling Ring, I mean, you know, to the stuff I went through with Kanye West and to, to like license that, that music was, was really... I mean, we'd be here for 10 hours if I told you those stories. One of the things about that uh, that's interesting is that I guess Sophia's filming certain scenes where they're like singing along in a car to a song. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like if you don't have that license already in place, you're taking a pretty big chance by having these actors sing along in a car because yeah. that scene has to go. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what happened with, with, with Kanye. There was a song called All of the Lights, which was a big hit. And it had the world of hip hop is the trickiest to license because that song has, I think, 11 guest artists. Each one of those guest artists, and I mean, it's Fergie, Drake, John Legend, Elton John, like they're, you know, they're just rock stars these are not little songwriters they're all huge alicia keys they each have to sign off on it they each were going to get a little piece of this little piece of money that i was going to give them and they're all rich so it was and sophia wanted to shoot a scene with them singing the song to make things more difficult the publishing company told me that there was a dispute over the over the writing credits, the not the credits, but who owned it, the percentages. So they told me it was unlicensable. But I learned when I did Marie Antoinette, if there's a publishing dispute, what you can do is you can take the money that you were going to license it for and put it in escrow. When they figure out their dispute, they get their their money. So there's ways you can do anything if you're creative and resourceful. Uh, trust me. Um, so so if you wanted to shoot the song and and I I've got the record company saying it's impossible, and then but I've been pretty lucky my whole career with her. I mean we've. I think she makes movies and we respect music and, and, and people want, you know, they're willing to take less. 
to have their song used in a cool way. You know, this isn't a, you know, Princess Cruise commercial. Thank you, Iggy Pop. But I mean, it's like some of these artists have really, they, they just don't care, but I care. So I, I think people get that when with, with Sophia's movie. So Kanye, I got to Kanye and he said yes. And I thought, well, if he says yes, it's on his record, maybe they'll all follow suit. And it worked. She saw, When she shot the scene, I didn't have a, an approval, but he had said yes. In fact, he was here in Paris at a dinner party and his assistant said, when he gets out of the dinner party, I'll ask him. And he said, yes, we shot the scene the next day. Three months later, I got it all approved. To this day, I think there's still a publishing dispute, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It it's all in escrow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It seems like this takes a lot out of you. Oh, it's terrible. It's excruciating. Yes. I used to work at home. I don't do that anymore. Um, once I had a child, especially working on horror stuff, you know, I, I, I got to have a- Keep that- yeah, studio. I have a proper studio, but yeah, I mean, I would work on these things 24 hours a day. You know, I'd be in my underwear, like drinking a cup of coffee. It's like, ah, like you wouldn't even take a shower because you're obsessing on like getting things done. And no, it's so it's, it's a hell of a job. Well, why don't we watch? Scoring's easier, is my point. Yeah. <laughs> why don't we watch a clip uh, to showcase the end result? At the very least, maybe you don't have to think about all of the sausage that went into making it. Um, we have a clip from Mary Antoinette, and I guess talking about this music licensing, there's two pieces of music in there. Um, one is The Cure, and one is from uh, New Order. So, yeah, why don't we take a look at this clip from Mary Antoinette? It's interesting watching that. First of all, we, we kind of have a rule. We don't actually use music over dialogue. Uh, this being an exception, you're, most of that dialogue, you're not really meant to even hear. And it's interesting hearing hearing it and hearing how it's mixed. And the other, the other thing that's interesting is the whole song plays. It Where we just ended, there's no more dialogue. The track comes up, they go outside, but the whole song plays. And... I think only once in my career up to that point had I ever edited anybody's song. Like, if I thought that that was blasphemous. You don't take somebody's piece of music and edit it. You know, I took the vocal out of a Chemical Brothers song on Lost in Translation because I wanted it to be instrumental. But I went to London and sat there and did it with them and got, not with the guys in the band, but with their engineer and had them approve it be you know nowadays everything you do whatever you want with someone's song in fact it's if you license if i license your song i can cut it up however i want i don't have to ask you but i thought that and i still kind of think that you shouldn't do that so there's a musicality and a flow and a rhythm to the music which is priceless you make mixtapes mixtapes for sophia before yeah. she begins to film a movie. So on that movie, you were thinking The Cure and New Order is the way to represent Marie Antoinette. Yeah, well, actually, The New Order was her idea. Um, 
I, I think I gave it to her. I, I don't remember, but she had, had put it in. What what Sophie and I, the way that movie was made and the way Lost in Translation was made is I started when she was writing the script. So, and I can tell you this movie was tricky in the beginning. It, it took months before, it just wasn't coming out. I, would, I wasn't cracking it. I didn't know. And then all of a sudden in one day, I made two mixes. And they're mixed CDs. I, I, I would, you know, I had one of those CD burners where you'd stop and start like a, like a cassette. Um, though I did make a cassette for Marie Antoinette, actually. Um, yeah, so I had made two mixes, and she listened to them. The actors also listened to them and their trailers. Everybody, we did the same thing for Lost in Translation. I mean, with Lost in Translation, I made two CDs and, like, that was it. I mean, all that music is in the movie. And so once the movie was shot, my job was almost done. You know what I mean? Um, How did you crack it? You said you cracked it one day. Like, was it just, just oh, the cure symbolizes youth? <laughs> there's two cure songs in this film, actually. And, and there's a cure song at the end, All Cats Are Gray, which is probably my favorite cure song it has no guitar in it <laughs> um and i had originally put that song in lost in translation but i took it out and scored it because i thought the use was it, it was too short it's like i'm not going to license this beautiful song and then just let it play for a few seconds so i made some music i essentially ripped off the cure and when we did marie antoinette once I, we had sort of decided all the music we wanted to use, we were here in, in France filming. And Robert Smith was in Paris. It was his birthday. And I gave him, I was able to give him a private tour of Versailles. Uh, we had this pretty unprecedented access to Versailles. We had it one day a week. It's the day they were closed. We would film there one day a week. Um, and they allowed us to go into these back rooms that the the general public does not get to see. And uh, actually, Nick Nicola Godin came with me on this 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 day that I was giving Robert a private tour of Versailles. And the funniest thing happened, which is we were in Marie Antoinette's private apartment, which is. Um, you know, she had a, a bedroom, which was for all the court to see. It was like the pageantry. Her and the king would get in bed and the court would gather around and sort of bless them and hope they would have a child. And then they the court would leave and then the king would go to his apartment and she would go to her apartment. They never slept in the bed. It was just a facade. So... I'm in the back showing Robert, you know, her toilet, and she had the first toilet in France, uh, <laughs> and first flushable toilet, that is. Um, and I'm walking through, and then at one point, the guy that was giving us the tour says, oh, and if you look through this door, here's her bedroom. So, he opens the door, and Robert Smith, he's, you know, he's got his hair, he's Robert Smith, he's this, this iconic guy and he opens the door and in the the bedroom is about 30 like Japanese tourists all these young tourists with their cameras and appears from nowhere Robert Smith <laughs> it was incredible there was oh so confused like the king of goth is suddenly before us is it real i mean 
I it was amazing. I loved it. Speaking of uh, Japan, uh, we should talk a little bit about Lost in Translation. Um, I guess one of the most notable things for music nerds is that you somehow coaxed Kevin Shields out of, I guess not retirement necessarily, but coaxed him to make some new music. Um, how do you get someone like that to a place where they feel comfortable making music and you just ask the world you just ask well i mean remember the thing i told you about jeff lynn and i mean i've got stories about you know the sex pistols and the rolling stones and all these different artists and and you can get to people and send them a letter or or ask ask them in the case of kevin i was in japan in osaka uh playing a festival with air and kevin was playing with primal scream he was on tour, and I'm a big My Bloody Valentine fan. And uh, our dressing rooms were next to each other. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to go say hi. You know, I'm a geek. I want to talk music. I want to, how do you make that record, Kevin? Uh, and uh, I looked in the dressing room, and there was no Kevin, but Monty bass player from Stone Roses playing bass with them. And he's like, hey, mate, what's up? He came up and gave me a hug. He's the nicest guy in the world, this guy. And I told him, is Kevin here? He's like, I'll find him for you. So I eventually, we met, and we just instantly kind of hit it off. Uh, just, I don't know. We weren't even talking about music. We were just... And after, you know, I watched Primal Screen play, and he came over and watched Air play, I guess. I don't know. We, and then after the show, we, we hung out. And it was like 4.30 in the morning. The sun was coming up. We're walking through the streets of Osaka back to the hotel. And I said, you know, Kevin, if, if I ever find a movie that suits you, would you be interested in making some music for it? And he said, sure. So two years or a year and a half later, whatever, Sophia was going to make Lost in Translation. When I was trying to figure out the sound of that movie, it was all about that feeling of being jet lagged and being in Tokyo. And it's, it's like being on acid. I mean, it's, you're drugged, even though you're not. And it's like My Bloody Valentine. It's like, you know, the very speed on a tape machine. That's what your brain is doing. And so that to me was the sound of the movie. And I asked Kevin, look, I got this movie. And we had done the Virgin Suicides and people liked what we did with that. And, Kevin included. And then... Um, Were you in the studio with him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He wouldn't go to the studio unless I pretty much brought him into the studio. I can't, He had a studio in Camden. And he had been kind of... I think he was just sort of trapped with Primal Scream. It was his job and, you know, it's hard to get out of those things, really. Um, he always said he was going to you know, My Bloody Valentine was just on hold. And I believed him. Um, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why we get along is, you know, people think he's crazy and I don't. I think he's just, we're all kind of crazy in some way. Uh, and when I was working with him, the people around me and people that I would see and music executives, they all thought I was nuts. Like, he's never going to deliver. He hasn't done anything in 13 years. He's not going to deliver for you. And it wasn't easy, but I got enough. I got what I needed from Kevin. And, I mean, I produced him. I played drums. I brought in keyboards. I did whatever. Uh, but we would start working 
right as all the restaurants in London were closing, because he only wanted to work at night, which me, coming from California, was fine. I didn't have to deal with jet lag. I just never saw the sun until I was going to bed, uh, which related really well to the film, which is essentially a jet lag movie, I think. And so we would start, I mean, we'd have breakfast at this restaurant right as they're just trying to lock the door. And then we'd work all night. And I went back to London, I think, three times. We did, we, there's one song uh, that is in the movie, uh, but we actually, I think, did two um, and in, in true kind of, you know, keeping with all the uh, rumors and myths and, I, you know, the, the, the nature and history of Kevin, he, <laughs> nothing was happening. And then all of a sudden he's like, okay, Brian, get on the drums. And was, I was so tired. It was like eight in the morning or something. And I'm just tired. And I sat at it. I was like, okay. Sat at the drums and he played these chords. And it was one take. And that's the song. I, I, didn't, I was just following him. You know, again, talking about like Hannibal and just kind of getting in that moment and getting your pure kind of, you know, raw reaction to something. I didn't, I've not really thought about this before, but that's exactly what happened with that track. Um, Should we take a listen? Sure. City Lights, right? City Girl. City Girl. City Lights is a great bookstore in San Francisco. You should go there sometime. (laughs) This is uh, City Girl from the Lost (laughs) in Translation soundtrack. City Girl. One take. (laughs) One take. It was also, that was all recorded to tape. Um, Kevin, I think, got Pro Tools to do the movie thinking he had to. And got like the best Apogee converters and everything, but we recorded to tape. And uh, when we did work in, with Pro Tools, I think we recorded at 192, which when you work at that high of a sample rate, like you can't, w- there's no plugins. Uh, we didn't use any plugins. He also doesn't use any pedals for the most part, right? Yeah, that's just a guitar. Um, what it is, and, and I learned a lot about Kevin and I, we would just, we spent more time talking about music and like the physics of, of music because I'm a real kind of purist. I'd rather, if I, if we want to have phase or vibrato or tremolo, it's more interesting to kind of break down what that is and then make it naturally, which is why, you know, I have, you know, you can make all these things naturally. You, live, he would use the pedals to recreate the things that you do in the studio. So, no, that's just, it's literally, it's a guitar. There's no distortion pedals either. It's just a guitar, uh, like a Vox, a certain Vox head, a little speaker, and, and a microphone. It's the reaction of, it, it's insanely loud. Like, you cannot be in the room. It will kill you. Like, your bones will break. It's that loud. And that, what happens with the translation of the, the volume, the microphone, the desk, the EQ. The dude is a master of EQ. Uh, he's got really sensitive ears. And um, I love it. I mean, those chords in that song, I think, are absolutely beautiful. And it's just, it's two guitars, uh, a drum set, and a bass. That's all it is. Another kind of classic, great songwriter you worked with a little bit um, for a movie's Elliot Smith. Um, this was for the Thumbsucker soundtrack um i guess only a little bit 
of that stuff actually made it out because he tragically he died killed himself what was it like working with him uh on that project that happened right after lost in translation and i was gaining a reputation it's like well if you can work with kevin you can work with elliot Again, Elliot wasn't my idea. It was Mike Mills's idea to have Elliot come in and write music. And it wasn't really to write music. Elliot was asked to do some covers. So he, we did um, Trouble by Cat Stevens, which is a song that Elliot, Elliot doesn't even, he didn't like Cat Stevens, but he liked the song. Um, and if you've heard that song, his version of it, it's like, it, it, I can't listen to it. It's too it's too painful. But he made it his song. He literally it's and it's the last thing he ever recorded. Um he, Mike had asked him also do to do a cover of John Lennon's Isolation, which is quite possibly one of the greatest recordings in the history of music. Like you don't redo that. It's too good. Uh but he was Elliot loved John Lennon and he was working on it. Elliot was very similar to Kevin in, in, in a way. Um, very sensitive, very quiet, great with the desk, great, you know. Um, I worked with a few people who are really insanely good engineers as well as musicians. Like better than, like their engineering skills are a part of their music. I remember... I once had a friend that needed an engineer in London. So I asked Kevin, I asked Richard James, uh, uh, and, and, and Richard James. Apex like, Twin. Apex Twin. And Richard, he doesn't even know any engineers. He does it all himself. And his, I thought that was so cool because what he does, his music and his engineering skills are completely connected. As I'm sure a lot of, your guys' music is too. My music is now. We're we're all essentially engineers now, um, which is which is cool, you know. Um, and the more time you spend with it, I was lucky because I had a guy. I did several of my films at a studio in Burbank that was owned. It was a private studio owned by a guy named Eric Gaverluck, and and Eric, he had uh, co-authored like. Microsoft Windows 95 or whatever, 98, I don't know, made a bunch of money as a programmer and invested it all in recording gear. He had the Trident A range that Queen did, like Bohemian Rhapsody. And he had the the Longevins and the Mike Prees that were on the Rolling Stones mobile truck. I mean, he had crazy gear and he liked me. And I don't know why, uh, uh, but he, he, he took to me and I would use his studio. And he completely mentored me he would say just take this one piece of equipment and spend some time with it learn to see what it does so and when i started playing drums uh i first got a snare drum i then got a cymbal i then got a floor tom you know i got got them in pieces and i think that was really good for me going back is to like take this you know figure out one thing rather than sit at a recording console and go oh my god it's a 747 what does this do and but it's really quite simple and you but you you know it's getting into those you know have one compressor and spend some time figuring out what a compressor does have your eq and figure out what that does and um 
Anyway, I think I I forgot exactly what the question was, but Elliot was 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 fantastic. I mean, he's such a he played me some music that was just mind blowing, and I was trying to hook him and Kevin Shields up because Elliot was scared to death of his studio. He he couldn't go in it, and the problem with with I could say a few artists that I know is that they've made these incredible recordings, these monumental, iconic records, and they're scared to death to follow them up. And fair enough. I mean, if... Do you think that film is kind of a way for them to think about it as like a lower entry back into making music? Absolutely. Not, not a lower entry, I, I would like, say. Not that their name is out front. It's you know? not a pop record. It's when you score a movie, you're supporting, you're a part of the team that's, you know, you're a line cook. You know, you're not, it's not necessarily all about you. I wasn't asking Kevin to remake Loveless. I was saying, let's score this film. And I was the guy that could shield people from all the bullshit of Hollywood. Because I understand Hollywood, and Hollywood is, if if you're too sensitive, or you know you you just don't understand it, it's so political. There's so much garbage, and you don't need to think about it. So I would shield these people and say, ah, don't worry, I won't let them get to you. I won't let a producer in the room. You'll just deal with me. One of the things I've read though is that you sometimes take music out like Mark Hollis had written something for a film and you took it out and didn't use it. How are those conversations going when you've coaxed music out of Mark or Kevin Shields? Is it just as simply of showing them the film and saying it doesn't quite work here? Yeah. Well, ultimately I'm working for the director and if I don't think something works or the director doesn't think something works, it's not going in the movie. It doesn't matter how good musically it is. You know, Mark did something for a film. Um, you know, I'm big, big fan. Talk, Talk, Spirit of Eden is very much the way that something like Hannibal is made. Tons of improvisations. You know, everybody gets a few passes, then they leave, and then we kind of take things out to create uh, the track. Uh, with Mark, I actually met Mark when I was doing Marie Antoinette. And I thought, when I was figuring out what I was gonna do. In, in, in one morning I met, first I met with Mark Hollis and then I ran across town and met with Richard James. It's quite a day. It was, and it was snowing and it was in London. I'd never seen it snow like that. Um, and I thought, I ended up using Richard's stuff, uh, but Richard didn't do anything for the movie. He. Um, he gave me some stuff, uh, and I I did some tweaks to his music. Again, when you're working on a film, it's it's kind of like you're putting your art on the somebody else's art, and that can be very not natural. What happened in Mark's case is he had done a piece based on a script, and uh, that's how I like to work too. Let's just see what this could be, what this sounds like. In the end. Um, Though I loved it and the director loved it, it wasn't the right thing for the movie. I ended up scoring that whole movie by myself, which is not something I had intended to do. Um, because when I go into a movie, sometimes it's like I just want to be a music supervisor and just take from my record collection or bring in Explosions in the Sky or whoever it is that might be the right fit. Because every movie should have its own sound. And if I'm a composer, I mean, 
God, I mean, oh, most of these, the film composers, the, their scores all sound the same. You could take this, you know, Hans Zimmer or whoever track and put it in any of those movies, and it's the same thing. Uh, no offense, Hans is great. I, I'm, I'm just saying that Hollywood in general, and it's typically not the composer's fault. It's usually the studios, they, they don't want to take a chance or a risk on anything. They want it, whatever is of the moment, that's what they want. But I don't, I don't subscribe to any of that. I stuff. think people like you and Trent Reznor can kind of come in from the side, you know, well, we working with Sophia records. yeah, and they yeah. can take notice and be like, okay, yeah. actually that can work. It does now work. We can bring... I mean, Trent won a, an Oscar. I, and when he won that Oscar, I felt totally validated. I mean, I come from the world of making records and I'm scoring movies and there's not many people doing that. Some people do one, you know, or, and now it's totally legitimate. Any of us that come from the world of making music can score a movie, you know? Um, before we open it up to questions, I wanted to ask you one last question um, to kind of go back, I guess, to Hannibal in a way. Um, you've talked a little bit in the past about bronze and uh, its properties. Bronze, the metal. <laughs> the king of all metals. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you regard it as the king of all metals? Well, I, I took a trip once. um to uh, two weeks, I went to Kyoto, Japan, and then I went to Bali in Indonesia. And that trip pretty altered my ears. Um, when I got to Indonesia, I heard the gamelan orchestras. I was completely taken by those tonalities. And I decided I needed to bring some of those instruments home. And there's a part on the island where they made, where they used to make, well, they still do, but they used to make all the instruments for the court. And I, you know, I went, I went there to pick out my instruments. So I spent, you know, hours in this gong factory, which is more like a, a shed. Um, and I brought these instruments back and uh, I got a full set of gamelan instruments. And when I started recording them and playing them, and I didn't study gamelan. I don't, you know, I buy instruments all the time. I have no idea. Like, I don't know how to play a viola, but I play it all the time. Um, and so when I started recording them and researching and doing all the stuff that I do, I, I discovered that bronze creates the most complex waveforms of anything. Anything. There's no synthesizer that's going to do what bronze does and so i for hannibal i had an instrument made um that is like a bronze slit drum uh what is a slit drum exactly? a slit drum is like an african tongue drum uh it has uh little slits cut in the wood on top like each one is tuned a little differently usually it's like one key one very harmonious um, I had seen a documentary on Toro Takamitsu, who's one of my heroes, Japanese film composer. You should all know this this dude. Um, and in the documentary, I saw this instrument sitting on a timpani, and I took a picture of it with my phone, and it was, turns out it was a bronze slit drum. 
And I had one made, it took two years. It was a nightmare. Bronze is 20 bucks a pound. I needed 60 pounds of it, apparently, to make two drums. So each drum is 30 pounds. It's about the size of this turntable, maybe a little smaller. And it's got about 30 little slits in it. Each one creates a different sort of tonality. And I take that and I set it on top of a 40-inch bass drum that I have as a resonator and I play it and it's just this insanely complex beautiful gates of heaven opening up heaven and hell at the same time actually because it's quite dark um, but yeah the the bronze thing and now I've become very obsessed with old metals I've been buying things that are I mean the older the better I've been buying symbols that are like 200 years old um, and they, as metal ages, there's a complexity there. You know, again, this relates back to me being a drummer, breaking cymbals. I'm, I don't break cymbals anymore, you know, because one is the way I'm playing, but, but also those new cymbals, no, it's like wine. I mean, this stuff really gets more complex as it ages. So, um, you know, yeah, the older, the better. And bronze, and, and you know, cymbals are an alloy, so they're only one part. They're not bronze. Uh, pure bronze instruments, we 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 don't really have that. The the and you'll notice when the gambolon when they play their the instrument that looks kind of like a marimba or a xylophone, when they play one of the tines, they before they play the next one, they mute the one they just played, so the two notes are not overlapping because that complexity it like your skull starts to crack, which when you do horror is fantastic. So you want those it's the most, to crack. yeah, it's very violent and physical and yeah. And, and what's cool, cause we record on computers, you can see the waveforms that it makes. Oh my God. It's trippy acid stuff. It's cool. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Paris. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.